It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. My guest today, Jen, through a direct outreach on LinkedIn. And I was just telling her before we started recording how I much prefer that these days, the, those conversations that feel very connected and what's the other word I want to use? I was going to say like customized, like it felt like it was meant for me versus some people who just send out a bunch of pitches and a lot of messages and there doesn't feel like as much of a connection. It feels more transactional. And as I started, oh, actually the other thing about that message that really resonated with me, Jen, is you had clearly read a little bit about me and from me. And you asked me a question. I don't remember the exact wording in this moment, but you asked what my preferred communication style was. Because I think I had just posted on LinkedIn about my experience exploring neurodivergence and my different types of communication that work well for me versus others that don't. And it was just so kind and intentional, caring to ask me what would work best. And that question led to you being on the show because I could tell that you were very genuine and I could tell that you cared about me and you since then, it put a lot of care into the listener as well. And you work in the world of neurodivergence, neurodiversity, specifically within the workplace. And so it all starts to make sense. You're modeling what you speak on, what you teach others. And that really shines through in, in the simplest forms of communication and helped me lean into getting to know you more, which I'm really looking forward to today. I'm so glad that you said that about my <laughs> message to you because there is a part of me that always kind of wonders, like, is this coming across the way that I intended to? And you had posted on LinkedIn about your neurodivergency and how it impacted your work and your relationships with peers at work. I believe I don't remember all the details, but I remember how it made me feel. And I think that's kind of a big takeaway is we don't ever really normally remember the details of what someone says or their message, but we remember how it makes us feel. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this person is talking about experiences that I have dedicated my career to helping people with. And I was like, I have to talk to her. I just have to reach out. And I messaged you just to say hi. And thank you for your posts. And then I saw, I looked at your profile and I saw that you were a podcast host. And I have been recently trying to get on more podcasts uh, to be a guest. And I was like, oh my gosh, what a fit. This is amazing. It is really amazing. And it feels so special because I also don't remember exactly which post that was. I had done a few. I had started dabbling in LinkedIn as an exception to my current social media rule, <laughs> which is not using social media except for occasional work-related things. And 
after about four or five months of being off social media, I felt inspired to start using LinkedIn lately. And I went through this phase for probably a few weeks of using LinkedIn every day. And at that time was also, I believe, Autism Awareness Month or Autism Acceptance Month. I think the terminology has changed a little bit. And I thought this could be a good opportunity for me to start posting about my experience, learning about my neurodivergence and suspecting that I'm autistic, still on that journey of clarifying that, but it seems like everything's pointing to it. So I really had this desire to advocate for it and spread more awareness. And I started looking at people who were speaking out about, (laughs) in support of the opposite against, but speaking out about their experiences with autism and trying to learn more from others and realizing how vulnerable that feels. It felt vulnerable to start engaging with people around something that I've mostly been exploring on my own, aside from the podcast. I've been speaking about it a lot here, but but speaking about that on social media just felt really hard. It still feels vulnerable thinking back to it. I remember wondering, even though I was trying to advocate for acceptance, I still had this concern that I wouldn't be accepted if I started to come out as someone with autism. And I think you're really one of the only people that I had any private communication with about that. So to this day, I don't know how any of that was perceived. I don't know if people started to view me different once I started talking about being neurodivergent. (laughs) I don't know if it really matters, but there wasn't a lot of feedback. So you stood out in so many ways. I felt supported by someone I'd never met before, essentially a stranger coming to chat with me and connecting with me over something that felt really hard to do. Yeah, I had a similar experience when I first started being public about my experience as a multiple brain injury survivor and what that looked like and how that affected my relationships in the workplace and personal as well. And I can definitely relate to it's hard. It's so hard to put yourself out there and not know how it's being received. And a lot of people, probably don't know how to respond to it. And that is a lot of the reason that's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is educating people about how to talk about these things, particularly in the workplace, so that we can all feel supported by one another. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, certainly in the research I was coming up or coming across platforms like LinkedIn, and yet in still being in this place of the unknown and the vulnerability, as I mentioned, it wasn't just wondering what people I was already connected to on LinkedIn were thinking. But it was also starting to feel vulnerable because I was looking for some new clients for my freelance work. And I was applying to various job opportunities on LinkedIn. And it's fascinating. I would really love to hear your thoughts on this, Jen, because a lot of companies claim to have a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They'll put those statements in their job description. In fact, I was actually looking to see if there were some job opportunities to work in the field of DEIA. And I was struggling to find jobs about that because so many companies use DEIA or diversity, equity, inclusion in their description, even if the job has nothing to do with that. But they're trying to put it in there. And 
I would find in various job applications that they'll ask you if you have a disability. And I kept wondering, are they asking because they'd be more interested in hiring someone with a disability? Or is it in some ways working against you? Like if you say, yes, I have a disability of neurodivergence that's classified within a disability. If you say that, do you have a less chance of getting a job? And I'm kind of curious, Jen, like, I imagine there's no easy way to know which is if either is true. (laughs) But are companies now trying to hire truly more people of different diversities, whether that's racial, economic disabilities, all these other factors to make sure their workforce has all different types of people in it? There's a few different ways I could go with this question, but I'll start with saying that I would say that there are more diversity recruitment efforts right now um, than there's been in the past. And there are even neurodiversity recruitment efforts happening in some companies. Um, You'll see that a little bit more in the tech industry. I don't know the answer as to if you check that box, what that means, because I think it's different for every company. I think there's some that don't even look at it. I think there's some that want it for statistics, but only the people who deal with statistics in HR or wherever data analytics deal with that information and the hiring manager or the team never look at it. And then I think there are some people who want to know that answer because of recruitment efforts are trying to bump their numbers up. I hope that it wouldn't work against you. However, unfortunately, that's probably reality in some places. What I find, though, is that there are, if you look at neurodiversity in the workplace, if you just Google it real quick, you'll see that there's recruitment efforts, but you won't see a lot of retention efforts of how do we support these people who once they're on our team, or if they're already on our team, what can we do to set them up for success? That is what's missing. And that's what I do. That's where I felt that gap when I was working for an employer. So I had my first brain injury when I was 15. And then I had two more in 2018 while I was working for an employer. And they were six months apart from one another. And so it was really like, bang, bang, like I went through it. And I knew from my past as a teenager going through this, like I knew what to expect, but it's completely different in the workforce. And my employer and my team and my peers didn't know what to do to support me. And I won't blame them by any means. They just, this isn't something that's taught commonly. And even generic leadership and communication skills aren't taught very often in the workplace, which could have solved a lot of these problems. But I teach those skills within the framework of invisible disabilities in the workplace. So how can we support these? How can we use these skills knowing that we have people in our workplace that will benefit in this way? I'm so grateful for that work, especially now that I have more awareness about myself and others, because this is a really new journey for me. And I'm discovering a lot of people later in life, but various ages will discover something pretty big about themselves they didn't know. It's common for late in life diagnosis, I guess, is a term you could use, especially with autism and especially within women. And that's been a really comforting thing for me to know. (laughs) Just 
coming across various books and articles. And, and this is also one of the reasons I was posting on LinkedIn was to not only kind of come out about that publicly for myself, but also say to others, I'm one of them too, in case there's someone looking at me and thinking, oh, because Whitney stated this, now I might look into it for myself, or now I feel like I can say something about there's that advocacy element of it. But also through that journey of learning this about myself, I'm recognizing how much ignorance I have, especially in the workplace. And I keep looking back on my whole work experience and thinking, oh my gosh, what if I had had different accommodations? There are times I was fired and I wonder, was I fired because I didn't understand something and I wasn't being communicated with properly? Was I fired because they thought that I was weird or worked differently than others? I didn't fit into some box. So because I I didn't seem to fit in there, they wanted to let me go. They wanted to get rid of me. Like, that's so sad, actually, to say that second statement, not just for myself, but I imagine that happens quite frequently with a lack of awareness on both ends or one end, because you have to learn how to advocate for yourself. But what if you're like me and didn't know you can advocate for yourself? You might just think something's wrong with you or you're not doing a good job. I think that's a common thing for people that discover it later in life like myself, which is hitting that wall of burnout. And that's when you start to discover why you got burnt out in the first place. And for a lot of people, that leads them to the road of, oh, I'm burning out because I'm trying to operate in a world that thinks and acts very differently than me. I imagine you come across this all the time, right? (laughs) Yes, people are trying to mask their symptoms to fit into a working world that's not designed for them. And we call that neurotypical. So that's kind of the opposite of neurodivergent, what we would consider to be quote unquote normal. Um, Whereas statistics show that actually there are more people who are neurodivergent than neurotypical. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I just recently came across this statistic. I don't have the exact numbers, but it was like, it listed how many people out of a hundred have autism or ADHD or dyslexia and kind of went through all of them. And then at the end of it, it was like 90 something out of 100. And of course, there's like comorbidities, like someone might be in more than one category and usually that's common. So we're not looking at actually like 90%, but it makes you wonder, (laughs) it's probably more than 50 with all of the crossover. And I just think that's so interesting that we have designed a working world for this, what we, someone determined to be typical which is likely your white male. And even if you just look at gender, women think and operate, work differently, have different energy levels. And so if you add on the fact that our brains operate differently, and not only from a gender perspective, but also from a neurodiversity perspective, there's just so much variance there. And we cannot assume that everybody will have a brain that works the same because that's just ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, in the workplace, we're always hearing organizations say like, we want out of the box thinkers. But Whitney, you just shared that you felt like you were let go because you were out of the box. And so it's just false dichotomy. It's like, okay, are we saying these things because we actually want it? Or are we saying them to, because we think we're supposed to, but we don't actually 
truly at the heart of our core know what it means to work that way. And I think that's often the case. I don't think that people are have core intentions. I think that there's just a lack of awareness. We say we want to be inclusive, but do we really know what that means in all different areas? I mean, there's so many levels to DEI work. And you mentioned that at the beginning, and I do want to share the statistic that I think that is really interesting. A report to Harvard Business Review recently shared that 90% of the companies that they talked to in this study claim that they prioritize DEI initiatives, but only 4% include disability in those initiatives. It's a crazy high well, low percentage, but high percentage of people who don't. So 96% of companies don't consider disability in their DEI initiatives. Whereas if we, if I want to throw more statistics at you, there's studies that show that 30% or more, like I just shared, of the U.S. workforce is disabled. And so if you just compare those statistics, we are leaving out a lot of people in our DEI efforts. And they might have other forms of diversity. They might be a different color of skin or come from a different socioeconomic status, but they might also be neurodivergent. So they might be getting these inclusive efforts in one category, but they might not feel fully seen because this other part is missing. Ooh, that phrase fully seen is an interesting one. A huge thing for me in my life has been feeling misunderstood. And what I've learned about masking is you can't really be fully seen if you're masking because you're hiding part of yourself. But there can be a lot of emotional trauma if you feel like when you show your true self, it's misunderstood or it's not accepted. And most jobs I've been in, even in the freelance world, I felt like I had to mask and or fit myself into some sort of a mold that didn't feel great. And now that I'm more aware of that and advocating, it still feels really uncomfortable because I am afraid that I'm missing out on a lot, whether opportunities to make more money. I've actually felt that way for a long time. I've seen friends of mine achieve all sorts of things, especially career and financial success. And I felt like, wow, I'm not willing, I don't want to do those things or I don't feel like I really can And I didn't know why I wasn't willing or able to do some things. And that was a big part of my journey, I think, sometime in 2019 or 2020, when I first started to look into ADHD, way before I looked into autism. I was noticing some things about myself. I looked them up and saw that they are characteristics of ADHD. I think the first thing I looked up was rejection-sensitive dysphoria, I remember just hitting home, this is describing me, but I don't seem to fit into a lot of the other ADHD characteristics. And I kept researching it. And there was suddenly this moment of realizing that there was something there. That's when I first started to learn about neurodivergence and thinking, I feel like I'm on the right path. And it seemed to explain why there were certain things I just didn't feel capable of doing. And that to me sounds like part of the definition of a disability, but I would love to clarify with you, Jen, like what is a disability and what is a invisible disability specifically? 
And does this tie into things like your brain injury? Because I imagine given the neuro side of it, as we're talking about, when your brain doesn't seem to be working, like it seems very different from what I grew up thinking of a disability was. I was thinking more of like a physical disability, like when it came to not being able to walk or not being able to use your limbs. I didn't really learn a lot about mental related disabilities, especially not invisible disabilities. I didn't know what they were until recently. So I'd love to learn more from you about what that means and broadening the definitions of disability so others can understand. Thank you for asking that. I have had a lot of people share with me lately that invisible disability is a new term to them. And it kind of surprises me every time because I forget that like I've been dealing with this for more than half my life. And it's so common to me that I kind of forget that <laughs> yeah, I'm in my own little bubble here and others want to learn about it sometimes for the first time. And so disability, it's a tough word. There's the medical definition, the Americans with Disability Act definition, but then it's also your personal definition. Like, what does it mean to you? I don't consider myself disabled, but I do fit that category in the medical description. So the ADA defines disability as a chronic condition that impacts your daily living functions to the point of making it really difficult to just do your daily living functions. And at the time when I had my first brain injury when I was 15, that was so true. I had to completely relearn how to live my life because I could not do it the way that I had the first half of my life. So what that looked like, if I get into specifics, for me, that looked like social settings were so different. I could not be around loud music. You mentioned before we started recording, you're sensitive to loud noises. Me too, sister. <laughs> so sensitive to loud noises. I have earplugs right here next to me on my desk that I wear all the time when I'm working even at home alone because just the outside noises of cars driving by and stuff are distracting for me. And so loud noises were an issue. I acquired a an eye disorder called convergence insufficiency. And basically what that means is if we look at each of our eyes, they each see their own image and they work together to cross over. They merge, they converge over one another to see one image. And so if you put that together with convergence insufficiency, that means that my eyes had a really hard time doing that. So anything that requires your eyes, <laughs> so your whole life, pretty much, if you are someone who uses eyes and you're uh, someone who is blind would not fit this category, but that was really difficult for me to read. I could literally couldn't read because while I could physically see the words, I didn't see double very often. Sometimes I do, but my eyes just got really tired from trying to do that convergence within seconds. I would try to read a sentence or even or a paragraph and I would have a headache and nausea the rest of the day. And so, yeah, school was just impossible for me. I was a sophomore in high school at the time and I actually failed out of English class um, my sophomore year because I, I could not read. I tried. It wasn't for a lack of trying, but my brain wouldn't allow it to happen. At that time of my life, I will say that, yes, that qualified as a, as a disability, according to the ADA. And I learned, though, how to adjust 
what I was doing. So I learned to set timers for myself. I went to a lot of therapies, vision therapy and things like that to make my eyes stronger. And so I can't handle more now, but I know that I need to set timers and stop when that timer goes off. Otherwise, I will pay for it. Like, for example, I was on a flight last week and I way past my limits. I knew that I did. (laughs) I was watching a show on my little phone, which is still a big trigger for me, but I can't watch shows, just not more than one or two episodes at a time. But I probably watched like four. And I don't know. It's just one of those flights where sitting and listening to the babies crying next to you just doesn't sound fun. (laughs) And usually I'm like, I'm fine with that. And I just feel bad for the parents. But like that particular flight, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want that. So I pushed myself past my limits. And then at the end of the flight, I was seeing double for at least an hour after like bad, like people were walking towards me and it was two people. And to the point where I was like, I'm really glad that I was with my husband and I didn't have to be the one to drive home because I wouldn't have been able to. So that's kind of another instance where at that point in time, I would call it a disability. But my everyday living, when I'm able to manage my symptoms, know my limits, not push myself too far, I wouldn't call myself disabled. But for the purposes of my work, I do. Because I want to normalize that these differences are okay to call out. And people understand it better when you call it a disability versus just calling it a difference. Now, when I work with teams, I use the word hidden differences or phrase hidden differences. And I include invisible disabilities, neurodiversity, and chronic illness under that category. Um, So an invisible disability is like something that I have, something that you can't see. No one else on that flight could tell that I was seeing double but I knew it. And I had to communicate that to my husband who I was with so that I could get that support. And so I think that's just such a great example of how in the workplace, no one knows what you're going through. So if you don't say something, you can't expect to get the level of support that you need, unless you're lucky enough to have a really great supervisor who knows how to ask the right questions and then follow through with the answers that you provide. Wow. That last part is really powerful. An interesting thing that that came up for me, like hearing about airplane travel, that's been a journey that I think has been really helpful in me advocating for myself. Because one place that seems like it's a lot easier to get accommodations is surprisingly at the airport. I'm curious if you agree with this, Jen, but I realized or discovered last year in 2022 that you can get special support through TSA. Uh, It's called TSA Cares. And I started using it and I could not believe how much easier it was for me to get to my plane having support at TSA. I wasn't fully aware at how incredibly challenging it was for me to go through TSA until I had somebody helping me through. And it almost makes me emotional thinking about it because the before and after is still so vivid for me now. And I also was have been using the offer when you board a plane, they allow people with disabilities to get on first. But where this conversation kind of leads me to is because 
you and I both fall into this invisible disability category. And because I'm still learning about what that means, I felt so, for lack of a better word, vulnerable because I always feel like people are looking at me like, well, why is she getting special care? Why does she get to board the plane early? The last flight I took a few months ago, it was really confusing like where I was supposed to stand. You know how, Jen, since it sounds like you were on a flight, right? This is recent, the one that you just shared. Like, So it's, it's probably fresh in your mind too. And I don't know if you do the early boarding, but it's really confusing the way it's set up because everybody wants to get on the plane really quickly, or most people do. Some people don't care and they'll just sit and wait till the very last minute and then get on the plane. But it seems like there's always that rush of people who can't wait to get on board. So they stand up and they're waiting in the lines and all that. And I'm someone who thrives when I have really clear direction. That's another thing I've learned and an accommodation I need, especially at the workplace. Um, Most workplaces actually do not have great organization or clarity at least in my work experience. And so I tend to struggle without that. But at the airport, they do a pretty good job except for this. And they'll tell you on the airplane websites that if you have a disability, you can go up to the people working at the desk. I don't think they're called flight attendants, but they're gate agents. Exactly. They say right on most airline websites, like if you have a disability, go up and let the agent know. But most of the times I've flown, when I do that, the gate agent like seems really annoyed and dismissive. And they say, well, just stand over there. And in my head, I'm thinking, you didn't give me clear instructions. Like, I don't know what over there means. And on my last flight, I made my best guess at what over there was. And I saw this man with a cane. And as the boarding was starting, I saw him get up with his cane and he went to get in line. And I thought, oh, great. Somebody that has a visible disability, I can go stand with him. But both of us experienced, the agent started to get irritated with us. And they started saying, well, we didn't say it was time to board. But what I could tell the two of us were trying to do is we were trying to indicate to the other passengers that we were disabled so that we could get on the flight before them. We weren't trying to cut in line. And it was just this whole awkward thing where I think the agent, because I had an invisible disability, and maybe they didn't even think he was disabled because he had a cane, it was almost like they were irritated with us for trying to advocate for our needs. And yet, when a person with a wheelchair came over, they got different treatment. And it wasn't like a comparison of who deserves better treatment. It was because somebody had a very visible disability, it seemed to me more easily accommodated. And so, I'm wondering if you've experienced this, Jen, and also like I'm sure this type of thing comes up in the workplace to your point earlier. If you don't have a very clear stereotypical disability, it might feel harder to be seen as disabled, to be acknowledged, to get support. And it requires you as the person to advocate for yourself on a whole new level. We've been talking about it's complicated to advocate for yourself. You either might not know what to ask for. You might not even know that you're disabled yet. You might be afraid. You might feel vulnerable. And I imagine that's contributing to a lot of suffering in the workplace of people needing something but not getting it because it's too invisible to be seen and helped. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of the fact that they have been masking it likely for years. And so the 
entire concept of getting support and not having to mask anymore is foreign. And so I think that is a big piece of it and of of healing really that needs to be done kind of first before we can be in that mental state of mind to ask for what we need. And sometimes, like you said, we don't even know what we need in the workplace. We don't even know what's available to us. There's a great website that has a lot of different disability accommodations listed. The name of it is askjan.org. And I'll say that again, askjan.org. And it is a website that has so many accommodations listed. It's called A to Z Lists of Accommodations for Disabilities, and it's for workplaces to get ideas about how they can accommodate their employees, but it's also great for employees to look at and get ideas of what you can ask for. It's really cool. It has apps that it recommends that you can give to your employees, and as an employee, you can download yourself, and it's really great because I think that's a big piece of it is not knowing what to ask for. Like, what is appropriate? What's too far? What am I allowed to ask for? It would be really nice if I had this one thing, but like, am I being too needy if I ask for that? So I encourage all listeners, regardless if you have disability, to look at this and see if it's something you can advocate for yourself. Because I don't think self-advocacy is just for people who are disabled. I think it's for everybody. And that's a big part of what I teach organizations is that this work, learning how to communicate to each other within the framework of supporting the invisible disabilities. Yes, it will support the people with invisible disabilities. That is the goal, the original intent, but also it will support the people without disabilities. Just the people who are neurotypical on your team who might just have preferences or work better in certain ways or have different communication styles or learning styles or work styles. This is really beneficial for everybody. And I think that if we have the courage to advocate for ourselves, it opens up the door for other people at work to advocate for themselves. And so I would encourage all listeners to take a look at that website after the episode or even pause it right now Take a look at it, askjan.org. Find one thing that you think you could benefit from and just toy around with the idea of asking your employer about it. Maybe you won't have the courage to ask tomorrow or Monday, but maybe you can think about it (laughs) and see where that gets you. I'm definitely going to do that. In fact, I pulled it up as you were speaking and two things came up for me. One was a wave of excitement and relief and a little bit of emotion. Because every time I see tips like this, information advocacy, I feel so grateful for it. And I wish I've had it my whole life. And I also, to your point, get excited to learn about other people so I can help accommodate them or advocate for them. But then another thing comes up for me is how do I ask for this if I think my employer or my client, in my case, working freelance, which by the way, I should say that I think is very common. Jen, I don't know if you know the statistics, but I would imagine it's common for a lot of neurodivergent people to work in creative fields because of how their brains work, the -the out-of-the-box thinking. You mentioned tech. It's very common for people to work in tech. In fact, I just saw an article the other day that I've been meaning to read about people like Elon Musk 
who I don't know if he's ever disclosed neurodivergence, but people have suspected autism for him for a long time. But the article was actually about all these male tech founders and how females neurodivergent workers don't get nearly as much attention or praise. There seems to be all these associations with people like Elon Musk, like, oh, he's so brilliant because he's neurodivergent. So now it seemed really cool to be neurodivergent, but like, are women getting enough of or anything close to that type of attention. That aside, I think it's probably common for people who think or and work differently to want to work for themselves or to do something really creative. And that's been my path. I've, I've worked in creative fields, I've worked in tech fields, and I've also combined both into my own career. So luckily, I can get a lot of accommodations because I essentially work for myself and self-employed. But I still interact with my clients a lot. And there are times that I would like to ask them for something. I would like to even disclose that I'm neurodivergent, but I don't feel fully comfortable doing that yet, Jen, because I don't really know what language to use. I almost said, I don't know if it feels appropriate, but (laughs) of course it's appropriate. But like, that's part of my old mentality of feeling like it's too personal. And do they need to know this information about me? And are they going to think of me differently? What if I confuse them? And what if they think less than me? Like all these emotions have been coming up along this part of my journey. How do you move through those emotions if you really want to get accommodations, but it feels really complicated? It's hard. It's really hard. And it won't become easy overnight. I can't tell you how to do it and it becomes easy. I will say a couple of things that help. The first is that it's not personal. And for the other person that you're talking to, if they respond negatively or if they respond in any way that doesn't feel like full support, it's usually it's out of confusion and misunderstanding. So given that context, the more we can describe why we need what we need, the easier it is for someone else to understand. And that sometimes can look like sharing your diagnosis. It doesn't have to look like that if someone isn't comfortable doing that. It wasn't something that I flaunted (laughs) for a long, long time. I didn't share my past with brain injuries until I was affected again I had two injuries while working and I had no choice because I had to miss a lot of work and fill out a lot of paperwork. But before that, I didn't ever say anything. I guess kind of dealt with it and asked for things. And honestly, a lot of times was declined. I didn't get the accommodations that I needed because I think we as people are very curious beings. And if we don't know the why behind something, or maybe this is just me, but if we don't know the why behind something, we don't care. Or like if you ever told a project, do this project at work, but you don't agree with it and you don't understand it. You don't really want to do that project, do you? (laughs) So I think that's just a different example of how the more we can explain, and this is a communication tactic for everybody. The more we can explain in detail, and just like you said, you do better when you have detailed instructions. So that is applicable for everybody. And use that too, when you're communicating to your clients and say, whatever feels comfortable to you in your own words. But you could say, I am more successful when I have blah, 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 blah. Can you provide this for me? Or can we have a conversation about how to move 
towards this way of working or this path. So that's a way of saying it without having to say, I have autism, this is what I need, because then it kind of makes them feel like it's their problem um, versus, hey, you hired me to do this project for you. I want to do the absolute best job that I can do for you. These are some ways that I'm more successful. Can you help me get there? And so then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I want you to do the best job you can do too. Like, let's figure out how we can get there together. Um, Because honestly, at the end of the day, all of this support that we want to provide to employees and for ourselves and to each other, at the end of the day, it's so that we can each individually be successful and as a collective be successful. When we have this support, that's what happens. And we can do bigger and better things for our communities and the projects that we're working on, which really a lot of the projects and missions and business are to create better communities and to create a positive impact in the world. And so if we can take away barriers to do that, then we're also making our communities better. And that starts with the internal culture of supporting one another and getting curious, not necessarily about the diagnosis or what's behind the request, but how can we optimize? How can we make this the best outcome that it can be? And so I don't really encourage people to share their diagnosis unless they feel comfortable doing so. I don't think it matters, honestly. I don't think it's applicable. It can help people understand better, maybe, if they are someone who doesn't have an implicit bias against di- against disabilities, which they might. I mean, I think sometimes I might even, even though this is like the work that I do, if I'm being completely honest, it's something that's just ingrained in the culture that I grew up in and maybe a lot of other people here. So one statistic that I like to share is in that same study that talked about 30% of the U.S. workforce is disabled. In that same study, they shared that 3.2% of people share, disclose to their employers what their disability is. And this included visible and invisible disabilities. So I'm willing to bet that the majority of that 3.2% was physical, visible disabilities because they couldn't get around not saying something. If you're in a wheelchair, that's kind of disclosure right there. Whereas invisible disabilities, I'm guessing the disclosure rate is a lot lower because they can get away with not ever saying anything. And so a lot of time when I work with employers, they'll say, oh, how can we bump up that disclosure rate? And I would just want to stop in my tracks and say, that's not the point here. <laughs> because you're trying to like bump up your diversity numbers and kind of like prove something. But I want to take the approach that we're looking at these differences as human. These are just different people and their brains operate differently. So how can we support them? It's not a dis- I don't like using the word disability, but I do in the terms of getting people to understand what I'm talking about. But in the medical definition of disability, it wouldn't call autism or ADHD or dyslexia disabilities because there's nothing needing fixing. It's just a difference that is actually hugely beneficial to companies to champion and support that because like you said, the creativity piece, I don't know the statistics behind that, but I do hear a lot of people who I talk with say, oh, I have ADHD or autism. They work for themselves and or they're creative. And it's either because like you said, they want to work in these particular ways and it's just easier on their own. And, or it could be that they didn't feel like they had the support that they needed in the workplace. And so they didn't want to work with other people anymore because it just wasn't worth the headache. 
literally, probably, and metaphorically. Yes, I think both seem to be true for me, but it's an interesting question to reflect back on because working for myself has not been easy. There are still a lot of things to figure out all of the time. And I've contemplated recently, like, hmm, maybe I want to take a break from working for myself, but I don't know if I could do that without accommodation. So this conversation is really good timing. If I did take on more work or focused on one specific client versus having a number of them, for example, I would want to better understand my needs. Like one of them is I tend to deal with a lot of fatigue throughout the day. Actually, something you mentioned earlier, Jen, that I would love to share in case anyone else can relate to this is kind of sad. Like you're bringing up some sad memories to the surface for me, not in a bad way, but just like really acknowledging them. I used to work for a really big, well-known tech company. I won't disclose who they are, but I've talked about them in the past and loved my work for this company. I still love this company to this day. But in my specific role at the time, I was working part-time and I really wanted to be in a specific position and I was advocating for it. I was trying to prove myself. And you just surfaced, Jen, inadvertently a memory when you were talking about gender because the person who was in charge of this particular team in that company was a man and their entire team were men. And I just remembered him saying to me that he was hesitant to hire me because I was a woman because he was afraid that my female emotions would impact my role. And I was trying to prove like, I've got my emotions under control. But yet, Jen, that was completely masking because I'm an incredibly emotional, sensitive person. But I was trying to mask myself as this strong, capable woman. This is about like 10 or 11 years ago, maybe 12. So I still had a long way to go in my self-awareness journey. No indication, no awareness about neurodivergence at the time whatsoever. And I ended up getting this role. I was so excited. I felt so fulfilled. It was just awesome in so many ways. But one day I was having a really rough emotional day and I actually did break down a lot and my emotions were impacting my ability to perform my task. And I started crying in front of this man. And he was really kind at the time, but I remember feeling so embarrassed. It was like I was proving his biases towards female employees in that role right. And I felt like I was not only letting myself down, but I was maybe letting like the female gender down in that moment, like, oh my gosh, my emotions are impacting me. And because of experiences like that, Jen, I think those drew me more and more towards freelance work where when I'm having a more emotional day, for example, certain parts of my cycle, my menstrual cycle, I'm very emotional, like almost on complete schedule, specific days of the month, I can barely work because I am either super irritable, (laughs) really tired, really emotional. It's completely impacting my work, but that's part of my biological makeup or that's part of just what's going on with my particular body. Maybe not every woman's going to experience it the same way, but whatever's going on for me at that time, I can't control that. And so to have a current career path in which I'm allowed to just take the day off. I don't even have to ask for notice. I don't have to call in sick. Otherwise, if I worked a traditional nine to five job, I'd be calling in sick at least once a month because I wouldn't be fully capable. 
And I don't know if I am capable now that I'm learning to unmask. I've discovered that I don't really thrive in working eight hours straight. I'm actually like someone that can work maybe two hours straight and then I need a break. And most of the jobs I've had in the past, they don't work like that. They expect you to be just going, going, going like an Energizer bunny and you're there. I could share just talking with you. I'm like example after example after example of either bad experiences in the workplace and or experiences in which I don't think I'm suited for. And now that I have more awareness, I'm wondering, could I never go back to any sort of nine to five job? Or perhaps with the example of that wonderful website, Ask Jan, is there a way in which I could get accommodations and actually be able to fulfill a job like that? I don't know. I don't know either. I think it would be some experimentation, but also knowing that you're going into a company that respects and supports your needs, I think is huge. I don't know the best way to vet companies that way because they will it seem like they've got the best culture in the world during the interview process to try to lure you in. That's kind of my vision for however many years, I don't know, 20, 50 years down the road is that people like you and I can apply to any job and and know that we'll be supported in that role because it has become so normalized to celebrate these differences in people's brains and in their bodies. And that's my goal. I hope that we can get there. And at this current moment of time, I'm trying to help us get there by working with organizations to teach them this this stuff. So I've alluded to it a little bit, but for the listeners, kind of so you understand what I do, I teach leadership skills that support neurodiversity and invisible disabilities in the workplace. And a lot of people will assume that means for the managers, but it doesn't. Um, it, I mean, it does, but it also includes, it's everybody. Um, I have a master's in organizational leadership. And in that program, I remember years ago, um, our, my professors just drilling it into our heads over and over and over that leadership is not positional. Leadership is not the same thing as management. If you want to learn how to be a good manager, get your MBA. Um, but this is a completely different degree where we talk about how to influence and support and inspire people to create positive change together. Um, and anyone can do that. The janitor can do that. Um, we used to call it person in position of authority, a PIPA. <laughs> you know, we're not talking about PIPAs here. We're talking about everybody's. So when I work with organizations, I teach everybody leadership skills. And that includes self-advocacy, like we've talked about. It includes communication, which is huge. It's the backbone of any relationship. And leadership is a relationship by definition. And I talk about hidden differences and energy management, which we do talk about, um, like you said, your cycle and syncing your projects and tasks with your cycle and sharing that with men so that they're aware and also talking about men's 24-hour cycle and how we can't expect men and women to operate in the same way because their energy levels aren't on the same cycle. And so it's funny that you brought that up because I actually specifically picked today to do the podcast interview because of my cycle. I knew that I would have a lot of energy today and I would be in a social mood, whereas next week, probably not. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, 
knowing that without that shame, because it can feel like there's a lot of shame tied into that. We still operate under a lot of patriarchal structure. And in a way, it doesn't surprise me that I had that experience. But that just showed his ignorance, his biases. He needs someone like you. Maybe he still has that (laughs) mentality. I don't know what happened to that person. But I was able to see past it and see all the other valuable elements of him. But that was not appropriate. It probably should have been reported or something. But like, I didn't even know how to advocate for that being inappropriate. I took it on and internalized the shame for myself without understanding now, like I said, probably 12 years later, I'm in a new place where I don't know if I would stand for that. It's possible I would, though. It's hard to stand up for yourself in a world that doesn't celebrate our differences. And I still think there's so much ignorance around these things. We see it in politics. Like even when we had Hillary Clinton running for president, various other women running for president and aiming to in in the upcoming election, like I think that often showcases a lot of viewpoints around women's leadership and all of these biases towards gender and how they impact somebody's ability to do great work. And I, I love what you said earlier too, Jen. It's It's not just about a gender thing, but it's also about just how different brains and bodies work and not seeing that as a bad thing. It gives us an opportunity to become more self-aware and intuitive and find out where we thrive. And like you were saying about your energy, there are certain times of the month where it works to my advantage and I have an incredible amount of energy and I think differently and I act differently and I speak differently. Like everything just flows. And if I can tune into my strengths, and not try to capitalize on them, but use them as opportunities to make a bigger difference in the world, which is something you've touched upon too. It's not just about making money and being successful, but understanding how we can collaborate with one another, communicate better to achieve our big goals and have an impact. And you've given me a lot of hope. You've given some great tools You've mentioned your support group, Jen, and I really want to join it (laughs) because I've already learned so much from you. But I want more. I want more, not just energy from someone like you who I feel like accepts me and wants to support me, but also that accountability and the community element, like you mentioned earlier, too, is so big. And a lot of us can feel isolated and alone and scared and vulnerable and full of shame. And that can lead to so much masking. But if we can have a place where we can unmask and learn and strengthen ourselves and our bonds with each other, that's such a beautiful thing. And I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. It's really important. And I hope that your goals come true too. I think you might have said 20 years. I'm like, can this happen a lot faster? Like we need this now. (laughs) We need this 12 years ago when I had that experience at my job, you know? Yeah, I'm not saying rush. Take your time, Jen. (laughs) I hope it doesn't take us collectively that long. I wish change was quick and easy, but people resist it so much. And rightfully so. It's change is scary. It's unknown. And so yeah, I mean, it probably will take that long, if not longer, (laughs) if I'm being honest. But I do think, though, that I mentioned the support group before we started recording. So I do want to share about it. I have a monthly support group that um, is currently 
free. And I always plan to leave a portion of it for free. So the monthly gatherings are free, but I might add on some more of that for a paid service for people who are looking for more support. But anyways, it is for people who identify as neurodistinct. I haven't used that term yet, but I do want to share that is a term that I'm trying to transition my vocabulary to use more regularly, but use the term neurodistinct instead of neurodivergent um, because I think it better encompasses the fact that someone who is neurodivergent is different and not the word divergent means to separate. And so I don't want to think about it as a separation, but as someone who has unique skills and gifts and that and so neurodistinct people anyone who identifies that way who has invisible disabilities or chronic illness and wants support in navigating those situations in the workplace so we talk about in that group we talk about communication skills self-advocacy skills and energy management skills specifically that's what we focus on. However, if the conversation leads a different direction, we'll of course support you there. Um, but that's the main outcomes that we want for people who attend the group. And I lead that with, I co-host it with a therapist who specializes in working with these populations. So she manages the personal, a little bit more of the in-depth personal side of it, whereas I manage a little bit in more in-depth with the workplace communication um, side of things. That is so cool. I can't wait to check it out myself for all the reasons that I mentioned. And thank you so much for bringing up that terminology, neurodistinct. I don't think I've ever heard that before. And it's so interesting. Like it's learning a new language for me. I feel like I'm still fumbling through and I want to get the words right because I feel like that helps do it justice and clarify and advocate but it is a big learning curve. <laughs> you know. And there's so much to take in. There's so much to understand. And another reason to join a group of where you can be in conversation more often, the more that we're listening, learning, speaking on things, the easier it becomes to add it into our lives and share that with others. And as I mentioned, Jen, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for you on a personal level, just how supportive you've been of me from the very first communication I had. And I'm so grateful that you're sharing with this in a public way where people who are listening to this episode can benefit too, no matter where they're coming from. I loved what you said earlier about it's not just for people with a disability, with a distinction, with a difference. It's for everybody. Just because you don't need an accommodation doesn't mean that you can't learn more about them you might find that you actually do want to ask for an accommodation, like that exercise you recommend for people. There's so many needs that aren't met because we don't know how to ask for them. And we don't know how to respond to people who ask for them either. I get so excited and lit up when I hear somebody asking for an accommodation. <laughs> Even if I don't need it, I'm like, yes, I'm so glad. I'm so thrilled that you knew how to communicate that. And that's an example of just being there for others. When I first went to the Ask Jan website, it started off, I think on the, I don't know if it was on the main page or when I clicked over to the A to Z list, but it had this list of all these different types of disabilities and differences. Yeah, it's on the A to Z section. And it's such an 
long list, Jen, and it makes me want to go and read about every single one of these disabilities and differences because when I see this list, I, I recognize a lot of ignorance within myself. I've become very knowledgeable about autism. I still have a long way to go with that. I'm learning a lot about ADHD, but there's so many terms underneath the neurodiversity or neurodistinct umbrella. And there are so many different types of disabilities that I have no knowledge or experience with. And every time I have a conversation like this, I just feel like I want to keep being educated. So another reason to stay in touch with you, Jen, because I know that you are passionate about all of this yourself. So thanks for putting your passion out into the world, creating a, a big goal with that to impact others. And thanks for spending so much time with me and the listener today. Thank you so much, Whitney. And I just want to say one thing before we wrap up. Well, two things really, but under one umbrella is it's okay if you don't know all of this stuff. I don't either. I mean, this is just so much to learn and we're always learning from one another. And when we're when we're advocating for ourselves or each other, that might look like advocating to someone who doesn't know anything about this. So if we flub on the words or anything, it's okay. <laughs> they don't know either, probably. And it's just a part of being human. And that's even another advocacy piece we can say is like, hey, I don't know everything about this, but I know these couple of things that I want to advocate for. And can you help me with that? Or whatever it might be. But anyways, I just wanted to throw that out there. And thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed getting to hear your stories and getting to share mine. And I hope that some people took something away from this. And I want to say if you're listening and any of this resonated with you, or maybe it it'll click with you in a few years if you discover that maybe you have one of these differences later on, like, like Whitney shared, please reach out. I'm here to help. And if there's anything anyone ever needs, I'm just an email away. I love to have meetings with people face-to-face -face over Zoom or in person if you happen to be in Colorado area. That's where I am. And just get to know you and hear your story and see how I can support you. And I want you to know that... No one's off limits. So if you're listening, thinking, oh, I don't know, like, sure it is. Why not? Let's talk. And if anything, you make a new friend out of it. <laughs> That's how I feel. And I can attest as I did from the very beginning. You're so approachable, Jen. And I will put the links to your website, to the support group, to LinkedIn, and also the link to Ask Jan that you shared. Anything else we may have referenced today? That's all going to be in one place, which is at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, where you can actually find a full blog post based on this episode and the transcripts. There are images in there. There'll eventually be a video once I get back on track with all of that. And if it's too much for you to go to another website right now, the easiest place to start is just looking at your podcast page, the player that you're on. And in that description, there will be a link. So you can start there. So look in that podcast player, click the link there, and you can take the next step. And if you ever need any support, Jen and I are each there for you individually and would love to help you out however either one of us can. So thanks again for listening. And thank you, Jen, for being here today. It's just been absolutely nourishing. Thank you, Whitney. 
Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.